welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey friends, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you are here. Uh, hey, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's some in the back if you want one. Um, we are in the book of Esther today, and uh, I have the distinct privilege of introducing a good friend of mine, uh, Seth McCoy, uh, and I met. Seth was a youth pastor at Woodland Hills back in the day when I was still uh, running around with junior high kids giving them wedgies. Just kidding. Would never do that. Are you kidding me? That's like totally inappropriate. Um, but I was a youth pastor, spoke at a camp, and met this guy named Seth. Uh, at that time, Seth was on staff at a church called Woodland Hills uh, and has since planted a community called Third Way uh, over in the Midway area. It's actually about uh, six blocks from the house I grew up in. Uh, and uh, also started a, a little coffee shop, uh, which is turning into a little wine bar area called Groundswell Coffee. So if you're ever in the Midway area, stop by and support our good friends over at Groundswell. Good stuff. They serve dogwood coffee, so it's great. You know, we have connections there. Um, but long story short, um, I'm just really excited for you guys to hear from Seth, uh, a guy that I've really respected and uh, kind of had a kindred spirit with from, from uh, the first time we met. And so we've kind of journeyed together along the way and planted new communities. So I'll be introducing Seth. He's going to uh, teach here, and then I'm actually headed over to Third Way. So we did a little good old-fashioned pulpit swap, uh, a little sharing of resources. So would you please welcome my friend Seth McCoy. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here. I, it's, it's, I'm resisting every temptation to like be a hybrid between a preacher and a comedian today. I mean, everything about this makes me want to pull out all of my terrible jokes. So I grew up in Southern California. Um, I have an older brother, and we were raised together. We were born... Um, uh, my mom... It's sort of hard to look back and figure out what was happening, but... Um, my mom was a single mother who clearly had some chemical dependency issues, among other things. And so my brother and I grew up pretty well on our own. Um, I, when I was about three and he was six, he would ride the city bus in Los Angeles to come pick me up from daycare. And we were pretty independent, and lots of people feel real bad for us about that. And we had a terrific time <laughs> doing whatever we wanted to unsupervised. Um, of course, all good things must come to an end. And uh, one day, uh, a person who I didn't know then was a social worker loaded up our things in a car, and my brother and I uh, pulled off, and that was the last time we, we saw our mother. And I only share that up front just because I think it's helpful if I'm going to talk about the Bible with a group of people that I've never met before, that you know a little bit about me. And I think we can't help but, um, we can't help but see themes that are important to us personally when we look at the Bible. You know, the Jewish rabbis would say that reading the scriptures was like, uh, was like turning a diamond. You know, you put a diamond in a group of people, and based on, you know, based on where you're sitting, each, the diamond looks different based on each angle. And not that one of these meanings is more true or less true, just different. And so what I thought I would do is try to share with you from the book of Esther. That's what we're at in the series. Um, that's where you're at in the series, Eat This Book. Uh, Esther, and I believe the next message is kind of the closing part of the Old Testament. Um, and so there's some, there's some real hard parts about this book. And as you guys have already been through, there's some real hard parts about the Old Testament. And we're going to get into um, a little bit of both of those. So let me just sort of tell you what I thought that we would do. Um, I know that most of you have the whole story of Esther memorized, but for the rest of the folks who don't have it memorized, I'm just going to do a quick review along with some of my comments about it. 
We're going to talk a little bit about some of the characters in Esther. Um, and then I'm going to come at it from, I'm going to share some of my reflections on Esther um, as, uh, as a person who had the experience of being orphaned. Um, Esther is an orphan in this story. And so the hero, the central character, uh, whether by death or sickness or just by personal choice, understood the pain of losing those who are close to you um, and understood the difficulty it is to extend yourself and be vulnerable um, to other people when you've learned as a young child that other people that you should be able to depend on, um, that they're not trustworthy. And that's not a small thing. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to it. We're going to be scanning through the book of Esther, so let me give you a minute to do that. I don't assume that you all know exactly what page it is. For those of you that didn't bring a Bible, um, what I'm going to try to do is sort of a mix of sort of paraphrasing the story so we don't get bogged down in a bunch of details about the list of eunuchs. Nobody cares about the names of the eunuchs in Esther. Um, but there are some parts that the Bible's writers are pretty intentional about what words they use. Um, you know, sort of like a, a great movie or a great story. There's lots of it that you can summarize, and then there's some parts of it that you just have to quote because the writers just got it on the button there. So, Okay, well, let's jump in. The book of Esther, chapter 1. And uh, in the first service, I massacred this part. I completely got lost because the writing on this thing is so small. And I just had one of those snapshot moments where, like, I realize I'm getting older and bifocals might be in my future. So, here we go. Uh, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes. Just so you're not confused about which Xerxes, it's the Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. And he ruled from his royal city, the complex of Susa. I know you know lots of Xerxes, so it's just clarifying for us which one we're talking about. It is the one that had a kingdom that stretched from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. You will see all through Esther here, the writer is sort of tongue-in-cheek and lets you know how amazingly great this Xerxes is. The great and amazing Xerxes. Here's, he's so great, he threw a party. In verse 4, for six months he put on an exhibit of huge wealth of his empire and its stunningly beautiful royal splendor. At the conclusion of the exhibit, the king threw a week-long party for everyone living in Susa, the capital. So a week-long party for the whole capital city. For the unimportant and the important, listen to the description of, some, of this party. Drinks were served in golden chalices, just like at your house. Each chalice was handcrafted. The royal wine flowed freely. He was a generous king. The guests could drink as much as they liked by the king's orders, with waiters at their elbows to refill the drinks. So, um, like a, a big, long animal house party with a bunch of people drinking and getting drunk with the king doing what kings do, showing off the royal splendor of his entire empire. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that there once was a society that was so self-centered uh, where the, the, the folks who controlled the whole empire lived in the capital city and would sort of drink the days away um, and not be all that concerned for the cares of the people. It's hard to imagine that there was such a superficial society with such terrible leadership. But at one point there was, and it was back in, in the old days. Um, now we enter into the first act of female courage in the story of Esther. 
because this King Xerxes is getting, you know, having more time with all of his friends, or whatever your craft beer preference is. I realize we're in St. Paul. Um, the queen doesn't enjoy this party. And it says, meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside King Xerxes' royal palace. Because I can pretty much guess that there was no women that wanted to be part of that party going on in the capital. On the seventh day of the party, the king, high on wine, ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants. And here it goes through the names I'm not going to bore you with. But he wanted the eunuchs to bring him Queen Vashti. He wants to show off his wife. Now, can you guess what this amazingly powerful man, what characteristic of his wife that he most wants to show off? Her incredible intelligence with math equations, uh, her terrifically wise stories. Uh, you can kind of guess it. Um, he wants to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good looking. And we get sort of the first hints of some of the sadness of... Um, of the, the work and role of power in the objectification of others. That the thing that he wanted to show off out of all his sort of things that he owned was the, the beauty of his wife. And in some great courage, Queen, Queen Vashti refused to come. She refused the summons. The king lost his temper, seething with anger over her insolence. Right, And this is ironic, right? Because the man who has control of of 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India, he can't control his own wife. And so he does what all men do when they're having problems with their wife. He calls the Supreme Court. <laughs> and he calls in the counselors and experts, and he says, what am I supposed to do about this? And they're all afraid. They're worked up. If all the women in the country hear that Queen Vashti has done this to you, then all the women are going to join in a big revolt, and none of them are going to respect their husbands, as if any of them did up to this point. So they decide to, to hatch a plan. Here's the plan. The king gets together, not the Supreme Court, he gets together all of his sort of young testosterone-filled generals and said, we're going we're gonna to come up with a plan to fix this problem of the women getting out of control. Right? <laughs> Just what we need. All the young men getting together to figure out the problem for women. <laughs> Chapter 2. Let's begin a search for... <laughs> guess what characteristic they're going to be looking for? For beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint officials in every province of his kingdom to bring every beautiful young virgin to the palace complex and to the harem. Um, then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. They're going to have a giant Miss Medes in the Persians contest. And they're going to get these women prepared. And it's pretty incredible the preparations that they're going to go through. Um, listen to this. Each girl, in turn, Esther is one of these girls. They come and they go into King Xerxes after she had completed 12 months of prescribed beauty treatments. Okay, we're just going to pause for a minute here. And I, I see that one of the values here at Awaken is authenticity. So I'm going to ask a question a couple of them, and I'm, I'm going to believe in your honesty. How many of you here have ever spent um, more than 15 minutes getting ready for a date, a first date with someone that you're interested in? You spent more than 15 minutes getting ready. <coughs> Liars. Okay. How many of you spent more than an hour getting ready for a date? Okay, more dishonesty. I have a, a little honesty in the balcony. How many of you spent more time getting ready for the date than you actually spent on the date? How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than you actually did on the date? That is a 
Think of the pressure on this young virgin, probably between the ages of 13 and 16. Twelve months of preparation to go before the king who has the power to take your life or the power to take you into the palace. And she wins. And the funny thing about the story is the story doesn't tell us whether that's good news or bad news. You know, there's a few ways to look at this story. On one hand, it's like this young woman who's beautiful and she gets celebrated in all of Persia and she winds up being the king's wife. And there's a real romantic view of this as if the king was in love with her. But um, there were over a hundred other women that he was married to in his harem. So being married to this man doesn't seem like that much of a, of a treasure or of a prize. Or the story of an orphan girl who's raised by another man and then gets indentured into sexual servitude to the king. I mean, there, there are themes here that we're not exactly sure how to read this story. So then in chapter 3, we get introduced to another character. So we've met King Xerxes. We've briefly met his wife. Um, we've met Esther, who's now his new wife. And we've uh, met Mordecai, who adopted Esther and raised her. And we're going to meet another character named Haman in chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, making him the highest-ranking official in the government. All the king's servants at the king's gate used to honor him by bowing down and kneeling before Haman. People in power love for other people to do things to show them how powerful they are. So everyone needs to bow down to show the king that, uh, that he's in charge and show the king's men that he's in charge. So everyone would bow down, and they'd bow down to the king, and they'd bow down to Haman because he was second in command, except for one person, Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. He wouldn't bow down and kneel. And again, we're not told whether this is good or bad. Is Mordecai being like faithful to his Jewish roots, saying, I'm not going to bow down to any man but to God? Or is he just being plain stubborn, that he just doesn't want to bow down because he doesn't want to bow down? He doesn't like to bow down to the boss man. They asked him, why do you cross the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him about this, but he wouldn't listen. And then Haman starts to hatch himself a plan. He doesn't like Mordecai. Not only does he not like Mordecai, he doesn't like the Jews that Mordecai is a part of. And once again, the sad part of this group of people being chosen by a society to be eliminated, and they start to work out a plan to eliminate the Jews. And here's how it goes. Haman spoke to King Xerxes, and here's what he says. He says, there's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. Worse, they disregard the king's laws. The king shouldn't put up with them. If it please the king, let orders be given that they be destroyed. I'll pay for it myself. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver in the royal bank to finance this operation. Now the king, of course, being a wise person, starts thinking like, okay, if you're going to kill hundreds of thousands of people, we probably better talk about the ramifications of this decision, what this could mean. Um, and Xerxes doesn't do that. What does he say? Go ahead. It's your money. Do whatever you want with those people. I mean, wow. Poor leadership, to say the least. And so the plan gets started. In, verse four, ch or in chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai finds out about this. 
and he begins grieving, as anyone would. His people are going to get wiped out of this empire. And this isn't a story that the Jews are unfamiliar with. Jewish children and women and fathers have been being killed over and over again in this story that we have so far. But Mordecai thinks that maybe there's some hope this time because of Esther. She's a Jew. She's in the king's palace. She's married to the king. So Mordecai sends a copy of this bulletin that they post that all the Jews are going to get killed. And he, asks, he sends a messenger to Esther asking her, please plead for our people's lives. Esther sends a message back to Mordecai that it's not as simple as Mordecai thinks that I can just talk to the king. Here's what she says. Everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the province know that there's a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited, and that's death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she might live. And then a really sad line gets hidden right after that. It's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. This, this isn't a beautiful fairy tale romance. She hasn't seen or spoke to him for a month. And then Mordecai, in probably some of the most heroic language in this whole book, he looks at Esther and he just speaks real truthfully to her. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the only Jew who's going to get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, he says, help and deliverance will come for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made clean for just such a time as this. The courageous role of Mordecai to speak truthfully to power. Esther sent back her answer to Mordecai. Okay, she says, go and get all the Jews living in Susa together and fast for me and pray for me and don't eat or drink for three days and I'm going to do the same thing and I will go to the king even though it's forbidden and if I die, then I die. Three days later, Esther dresses up and she's going to approach the king. And the king reaches out his scepter to her and he says what kings say when they're having a good day even though they don't really mean it. He says, what it, come here, tell me what you want, I'll give you whatever you want, even half my kingdom. And this doesn't mean that he'll actually do it. If Esther said, okay, I'll take 50%, that would not have happened. And Esther, being smart, doesn't come right out and say, here's what I want, I want you to, I want you to take care of Haman, your most trusted advisor, because he's going to kill my people, the Jews. So she says, here's what I want. I want you to come to dinner. You and Haman come to dinner with me. And so they agree. Haman leaves the palace that day real happy. The king's going to eliminate the Jews. He's in a position of power. He has everything he wants. And now even the beautifully, amazingly attractive Esther wants to have dinner with him and the king. And so they go. Or, I'm sorry, they're going to go the next night. That night, as the king's going to bed, the king can't sleep. And the king does what all kings do when they can't sleep. Um, you and I, when we can't sleep, we have to read. Kings don't have to do that. Kings have other people that will read to them so they can fall asleep. So the king asks for someone to read to him, and they say, well, what do you want to read? And the king 
has them read what kings like to have read. Uh, he has uh, the book about his, uh, all of his own activities and stories read to him. He said, I know, let's read my favorite story, the story about me. And so they open up to one chapter of the story about me, and they come to the story about the time that Mordecai had exposed the plot to kill the king. And the king remembers this. Oh yeah, he did help me out. Whatever happened to that guy? Did we ever do anything for him? And they say, nope, nothing's ever been done. So he pulls in one of his advisors, um, one of his advisors that hates the Jews and especially hates Mordecai. And he says to Haman, he says, what, what do you think we should do for a person that the king really wants to honor? A person that the ki- I want to make this person feel real special, right? And Haman goes, well, of course he's talking about me. So he comes up with this elaborate description of what to do. And then the king says, I like that idea. Go do that for Mordecai, who you hate. He doesn't say the who you hate part because he doesn't know that yet. I added that. (laughs) And so he does it, and I can only imagine the burning anger and hatred inside of him. I mean, when you already hate someone enough to kill them, and then your boss makes you, uh, (laughs) he makes you march them around in honor, I can only imagine the hatred growing in him. Then the next day, the king and Haman, they go to dinner with Esther. Just the night before, when the king is having this dream, Haman's also doing some work in preparation. He's building a big gallows with a noose so that he can hang Mordecai and begin the massacre of the Jewish people. So the next day comes and Overnight, you know, the king hasn't been able to sleep and Haman's been building a noose for the Jews and then comes this party. I can only, you know, there's shows I love like The Office for their awkwardness, you know, their awkward moments. I could just imagine the awkwardness of being at this dinner with Esther and with Haman um, and with the king. So they go to dinner and the king says, all right, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom if you want it. And this time she's real honest and says, we've been sold. I and my people to be destroyed. Sold to be massacred and eliminated. King Xerxes exploded. Who? Where is he? This is monstrous. Esther says, an enemy, an adversary, the evil Haman. Haman freaks out starts begging Esther, please intervene for me. She does no such thing. While he's pleading for his life for Esther, the king leaves and comes back, and now he thinks that Haman's even molesting his wife. He gets even more furious. And it just so happens that just off to the stage right, there's these gallows with ropes hanging down, all ready for the hanging. And the king says, hang him on it. So Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And honestly, when I look at this story, I would love for this story to end right here. To have chapter 7 be the end of it. But it's not. And it turns ugly. And Esther spoke to the king in chapter 8, falling at his feet, begging with tears, please, Don't kill my people. And King Xerxes says to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I've given Haman's estate to Esther and he's been hanged. 
Go ahead and write down whatever you decide on behalf of the Jews and then seal it with my ring. So Esther has permission. The fate of all of the, the Jews have been saved and the fate of the people that had hated in the Jews were in her hands. She could put whatever she wanted in this order. And I can only imagine the, the struggle that she had. And to me, what turns out to a really ugly end of the story she, on behalf of the king, orders that all of the enemies of the Jews be slaughtered. Verse 11 of chapter 8. The king's orders authorize the Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing anyone that threatened them. So the Jews finished off all their enemies with the sword, slaughtering them left and right, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In the palace of Susa, the capital city, the Jews massacred 500 men. And then later on the 13th day of the month, they killed 75,000 of those people that hated them. And then the next day, the 14th day, what do you do after you slaughter 75,000 people? They celebrated with much food and laughter. And I think to me, the irony is thick and clear. This fate that they had, that the Jews were going to get killed. The beginning of the story has the Persians celebrating carelessly, planning out the death of all of this group of Jewish people, and the end of the story of Esther ends exactly the opposite, with the Jews empowered and wealthy, living in Haman's estate, and with their enemies murdered. And through the whole book of Esther, one of the puzzling parts is the name of God does not appear one time. It's sort of torturous. Because here's the hard part about a story. What I want to do is tell you all the story and go, okay, here's the three things that you can take with you to work tomorrow of how to put Esther into practice today. You know what I'd say? I'd say, one, just don't be a Jew. Because all through the scriptures, you're in dangerous ground. Right? The second I'd say is like, if you have a king that drinks way too much and has too much power, I would try to stay, <laughs> stay away. Um... But there's not that. The story is complex. Right? Because, the, like any great story, the characters are complex. I mean, probably the least complex of all the characters is, is Xerxes. Right? For whatever great powers that he had in leading the armies of the empire to grow to such a state, he did what emperors often do when they're wealthy and they have everything that they want. He made it all about himself. And in doing that, he abdicated the responsibility that God gives to all kings and rulers and authorities and leaders and presidents and CEOs, which is to take care of the dignity and responsibility of humankind. And he doesn't do it. I mean, think about that. In a two-day span, King Xerxes used his ring on one day to sign off and stamp the murdering of the Jews, and two days later, used the stamp again for the killing of the people that were going to kill the Jews. Xerxes is not a mysterious character. We've all seen him, right? You can't exactly hate him because he's sort of too stupid to hate, you know? Like, sort of like me and Laura were talking about this yesterday. Sort of like Michael Scott from The Office. He's a complete bumbling idiot, but you can't really hate him because somebody sort of has to be intelligent to do enough for you to want to hate them. Now, Haman, on the other hand, is smart enough to hate because he's smart enough to be vindictive. And so we look at him and 
we see in him this part, honestly, of ourselves that we love to hate. This part of us that longs for power, right? I mean, he comes home to his wife and he brags. He said, look at all this stuff I have and I'm the king's second in command and I have all this money and it's still not enough, right? Haman has this dark side and his dark side is called more. Right? There's a little joke of like, who's happier, the man with a million dollars or the man with 12 children? Who's happier? The man with 12 children because he doesn't want any more. I'm sorry. I told you I was going to try to resist. I couldn't. It was bad. But the truth is, is we all identify with that because we want more. We love more. Haman is a character that we can hate in this story until we remember that there's a little bit of Haman in each one of us. And boy, we certainly don't want God to deal with the Haman inside of us in the way that the Jews dealt with the Haman in this story, hanging him up on the gallows. There's Mordecai, who, who knows, he's kind of a mid-level manager beforehand, and afterwards he's the second in command, but at least at one point he was able to look at Esther and go, don't you think, don't you think, Now, the little community that I've started over in St. Paul, um, over in the Hamlin Midway, um, we're a Mennonite group of people. And we're all first-generation Mennonites, so we're not all that good at farming, and we don't have horse and buggies. We, some of us have cars and the like and jobs. And, um, but one thing that we do share with sort of our historical roots with Mennonites is a pretty strong commitment to peacemaking and nonviolence. And that's why the Book of Esther is particularly disturbing to me. Because God doesn't show up in the story, and so we're left to try to figure out which of these things is God underneath and behind, and which of these things is he not underneath behind. And we could have a long discussion about that. It is not real clear. So I thought I would share with you some of my perspectives on that. I don't think it's a coincidence that the night that Haman is building the gallows that will begin the execution of God's people. I don't think it's an accident that the king can't sleep. And I don't think it's an accident that the book that he wants to read is a book about himself. And I don't think it's an accident that the story that he turns to is, is, is the story about a time when a Jew helped him. I don't think that's an accident. And I don't think it's uh, not truthful when Mordecai looks at Esther and says, God will save his people. Your choice isn't whether to save us or not. You are not the hero for us. God will care for us. Your choice is, where are you going to end up in this? It seems to me as I look at that story, it's not Esther that saves the people. It's God that saves his people. Because the disturbing part is what Esther does after her people are saved. Signs the order for the execution of their enemies. It's a book like Esther that makes me real glad that the Bible doesn't end in the Old Testament. It makes me real thankful that we meet a man later on in the story who stands up on a mountain with his followers and he teaches his disciples and he said, I'm telling you to love your enemies, people that hate you. I want you to bless them and pray for the ones that persecute you. I don't want you to kill them. Because, again, the problem is, if characters like Haman get killed, 
then characters like me need to get killed. There's a little Xerxes in me, and there's a little Haman in me. And on my good days, there's a little bit of Esther in me, and a little bit of Mordecai in me. And if characters like that just get executed at the end of a story, then I don't really have any hope. famous uh, teacher of teaching people how to preach. You know there's a class that we all take when we do this and people tell us how to preach and we usually ignore all of their advice. So that there's only, there's three parts to every great story and every great sermon. Every single one of them has a comedy and a fairy tale and a tragedy. I think we can see the comedy in this story both the irony of the fact that the gallows that are meant for one group gets used to kill them, or gets used to kill those who built it. The ridiculousness of this King Xerxes leader who waffles all over the place and basically makes a fool out of himself. (coughs) I think we see the tragedy. A young teenage orphan girl pulled into the king's palace and done who knows what with. The tragedy of a race of people who, regardless of where they live, they end up hated wherever they are because they don't fit in. They won't live like the people in that culture. But the things that the Jews have is a fairy tale that one day God saw Abram and he chose Abram. And he said, I'm going to make you a father of a group of people that I'm going to be so in love with that I will pursue you regardless of how many times you turn your back on me. This is the story of the Old Testament that we're coming to the end of, is God's incredible pursuing love for a group of people who will easily choose another lover. Okay, so what, right? Us people who like theology love to go on and on about all this stuff, and then you go, well, what am I supposed to do with that? So I did write a couple questions at the end, like, what's the point of all this stuff I've been jabbering about for 25 minutes? Or more, maybe feels like more. So here's a few questions for you to think about. One, what kind of character are you in the story right now? This story isn't just about Esther. Esther is one chapter in the story of God redeeming and healing the entire existing universe. That's a story that you're in. After Esther, we get a little better picture of what redeeming and healing looks like in the person of Jesus, but it's not a totally different story. It's the same story. God loves you. God loves the world. God wants to heal it. God wants you to play a role in that. What kind of character are you? My second question, as a person committed to nonviolence, all through this story, I see power and the abuse of power, the intoxication of what it means to be powerful. I see a king so intoxicated with his own power, he he personally abuses his own wife, he allows the abuse of citizens of his kingdom I see the abuse of power everywhere. And I wonder, how are you doing in relation to power? What power have you been given? If you're a parent raising children, you've been given power. What are you doing with that? If you supervise employees, 
I could go on and on. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been empowered, how are you utilizing that power for the good and the blessing of other people as opposed to the status and intoxication of being self-focused? Another question. Who do you see as your enemy right now? Who do you see as your enemy right now? And then the last one, I feel like I can't help but talk about this in Esther. Because we don't live in a society where this idea of the objectification and abuse of women is far away from us. Now granted, there's been some real strides, but we're not at the finish line of that. So if you're a man in the room, how are you doing it? naming and repenting of the demeaning objectification of women in our culture? How are we as Christians modeling the value of women? If you're a woman, how are you doing at courageously walking in your identity as the image bearer of God? You are the image bearer of the King. At the end of the day, for all of us, how is our life and our decisions, how are those things a witness to the reign of King Jesus? I happen to be deeply fascinated by and personally committed to this vision that Jesus of Nazareth put out into the world of what it was that God was like. At the end of the day, this is what Esther reveals. Okay, there's a pastor, a famous one in Seattle. He wrote a little bit describing Esther. Here's what he says. Esther grows up in a very lukewarm religious home as an orphan raised by her cousin. Beautiful, she allows men to tend to her needs and make her decisions. Her behavior is sinful, and she spends around a year in the spa getting dolled up to lose her virginity with a pagan king like hundreds of other women. She performs so well that he chooses her as his favorite. Today her story would be, a beautiful young woman living in a major city allows men to cater to her needs, undergoes lots of beauty treatment to look her best, and lands a really rich guy whom she meets on The Bachelor and wows with an amazing night in bed. She's simply a person without any character until her own neck is on the line, and then we see her rise up to save the life of her people when she is converted to a real faith in God. This is his description of Esther. At the end of the day, the entire Bible is a book about God. What kind of God we believe in. I happen to believe that the God of the Bible is a real different one from the one that this is being described here. And so it begs the question, what kind of role are we playing in this story? What kind of God do we see in the book of Esther? Which parts of Esther is God initiating? Is God leading? And which parts of Esther is our own human um, sort of willingness to play a role in a story that shouldn't be written? Are you part of this movement of resistance that the kingdom is coming? The kingdom is coming. Let me say a short prayer for you, and then the music team is going to come and close up our time together. Father, we want to.
pause for a moment and remember. Boy, the, the real hard work you've had from the very beginning of time trying to shape a human group of people. To try to shape them to be in your image. A group of people who love to take the little power that you give us and use it for our own good instead of for the good of others. We find ourselves in a world, frankly, not ridiculously different than the book of Esther. We find ourselves gathered as a group of people trying to find meaningful ways to pursue you and your vision for the world and, frankly, to be resistant to the sickness and virus of the culture that hosts us. And yet we can't judge that culture. We're called to love it. To transform that culture by loving it into a new place because this is what you did. Jesus, you transformed our world by relentlessly and ruthlessly loving it into a new place. Lord, help us to resist the temptation for revenge that we see in this story that turns this one real ugly. Challenge us at moments of crisis to be faithful and selfless like Esther was. Challenge us to be willing to speak truthfully to each other the way Mordecai did. Remind us that you're all around us and whether you're named or not, whether we can see you or not in a storyline, you are there. Ridiculous as it seems, you have promised to be faithful to the humans and not to abandon us. Or for Micah right now, who's teaching at my church, pray that you'd use him to speak truth to our congregation. For churches around the world that are gathering today on Sunday of every shape and size and denomination and color, remind us that we're one, unified. For the struggle of people who have been the victims of power, for the rights of women, for the rights of minorities, of all kinds and sizes, help the church be a group of people that advocates for human dignity in every form. In your name, amen. Hey, thanks for being real gracious to me and listening to me. It's been real fun to be here with you this weekend. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.